Hey everybody, welcome to the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast brought to you by the Genetic Literacy Project. I'm your host, Cameron English. And I'm your co-host, Kevin Fulta, a professor who cares about science communication. This is the weekly show where we discuss the biggest stories from the Genetic Literacy Project to keep you informed about groundbreaking developments from the world of science and medicine, and of course, to help you separate facts from fallacies as you read the headlines. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Cameron and Kevin here with you as always. Episode 192. Kevin, how are you, my friend? <laughs> I'm hurting. <laughs> I, mean, I hate I hate, I hate Twitter. And, and you know, just it it is so unbelievable. It's such a great way to disseminate information and reach out to people and help others understand science. Great communications tool. But man, when you 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 tap the wrong person on the shoulder and say, excuse me, <laughs> and you are screwed. It's uh, I, I commented on uh, someone who I guess she's very prominent in the, the pro-choice world, and she had posted something that I thought was a little bit of a distortion that really wasn't going to work for her. And as a pro-choice guy, um, I said, you know, man, maybe think about this from a communication side a little bit more. And man, did I get it. I mean, that, it was it was mansplaining for one. Oh um, boy. Yeah, it was mansplaining and <laughs> just the you need to apologize and retract your and, it, and it's like hold on a minute. And and the thing was they said, well look, this is what a nine week uh this is the tissue from a nine week pregnancy. And they just showed like a blob of stuff on a plate and kind of felt like it was downplaying that there was something going on there. And it just so happened. And this is total coincidence that the same day someone showed me a nine week ultrasound and you could see very, you know, very clear evidence of something happening there. And, uh, and certainly when you look it up online, two things are fully differentiated. You know, there's an embryo in there. It's got, you know, some limb buds and a head and a tail and all that good stuff. So you, you can't just say there's nothing here. Well, by pointing that out, I was told that I'm not a doctor. I'm not a professional. I'm not an expert. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking. And then they said, you don't have a uterus, so you can't comment. What are you, a geneti- geneticist with three decades worth of academic experience? Is that what you're trying to say? Well, and a guy who looks at chim- chicken embryos like almost <laughs> nightly in eggs and has sat down and looked at the em- differences in embryology as they occur across across species because I think it's so freaking cool. So anyway, I am kind kind of know a little bit about this, but but the fact that, and this is the sad part, is that I reach out to somebody who I agree with because we both have the same goal and I offer a suggestion and am castigated as a misogynist and told that I shouldn't have an opinion because I don't have a uterus. And it, it really bothers me because if it was a guy and I offered him a suggestion, that would be off the table. And we could say, yes, your suggestion sucks or your suggestion is good. But this kind of thing makes me not want to make suggestions to someone like that again. And their sexism, you know, there I'm being forced to make a decision based upon someone's sex that has nothing to do with a gender associated uh, 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 issue, right? I was just helping a person who I liked her opinion and wanted her to do well and suggested maybe this isn't the best way to do it. Wow. And, and the blowback has been insane. So, um, I know I won't be recommending her as my Twitter follower. <laughs> All you do next time is you just say, well, my pronouns are she and her. So let's move on with the discussion. You know, it, it would have been easy, but I still wouldn't have a uterus. 
And, and you know what? That would you would probably see heads exploding all over the place because that would be, you know, because now you can't. Yeah. So anyway, it just it's just a sad thing because it's another reason why we can't have honest conversations like we need to have. Yeah. And and how do we be effective if you are pro-life, pro-choice, whatever? How do you be more effective in your communication strategy, vegetarian, vegan, whatever? That the, the folks who get so dug into their positions that they become recalcitrant to anyone offering ways to be better, uh, it kind of is a dead end. So anyway, that's my two cents. And I'm, I had a fun, horrible last couple of days with that. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> the, we don't have to dwell on this, but the whole thing is just preposterous. The way, the way that she responded to you, but, but then the way that she wouldn't interact with what you're saying, you know, I, I have a, a picture from uh, one of my, my wife's first ultrasound when my son was eight weeks old and yeah. it's all there, you know, obviously it's right. He's not fully grown. Everything's there. Right. And of course the, right? He's got his own unique DNA at that point and he's growing. It's just a matter of size. We're all blobs of cells. So yeah, anyway, yeah. It's well, all- I, well, all of this caused me to really look at it and really go into the uh, literature and understand where we were. When I was a kid, I used to go to the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago and look at the whole progression from, they had an egg under a microscope all the way up to a fully formed fetus. And you could see that progression. I always thought that was cool. And I looked at it just specifically to double check myself and make sure I was correct. And you have fully formed limb buds, you have formed lungs, formed brain, you have uh, neurological tissues, you have uh, buds, nails, eyeballs, all that stuff. You still are developing uh, liver, kidney, spleen, and gallbladder at that point. But this is still a time of differentiation in an embryo, but this closely proceeds when you start having expansion growth uh, towards being an early stage fetus. So I, I don't regret what I said because it was wrong. I regret what I said because of who I said it to and not understanding that they were incapable of receiving a, a constructive criticism. It's a good lesson. It's a good lesson because we talk a lot about engaging people and how you do it. But I, I think there are some people, they're just lost causes. You know, they're so deep into whatever ideological commitments they have that they can't, they just aren't capable. You know, it's like a, it's like a, like a blindness almost. But anyway, so that's, a, that's enough of that. Let, let's jump into our stories because we'll both get, we'll both get all crazy <laughs> on, on this. Kevin. So, no stories today. We're going to. No rant. stories. We're talking about abortion. Everyone's favorite topic. Okay. So first step. Regenerative is replacing organic as the latest green farming fad. Here's why the reality falls far short of the hype. Next up, sending a Trojan horse into cancer cells. Can this genetically engineered bacteria stop tumors in their tracks? And finally, banana-flavored beer, gene-edited yeast, expands beer taste possibilities. (laughs) All good stuff. Okay, Kevin, so this first story is mine. I wrote this back in the summer for the American Council on Science and Health originally. And as I've said before, I just troll Twitter for story ideas sometimes. And I found a clip someone had retweeted of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's a long name. Um, And I I don't pay attention to what most politicians do, but it was a hearing about agriculture and sustainability. And it wasn't particularly uh, informative. It was just her throwing softball questions at her handpicked expert. I don't know who the, who the woman was she was talking to, but she had someone from some environmental NGO and then a regenerative farmer. Um, and she was like, 
can this save the world? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Miss Cortez, this can save the world. Okay. Will it bring people back from the dead? Oh yes, absolutely. You know, like this is the sort of, <laughs> sort of format, you know? So I, I took the clip and, and her tweet and I just tried to inject a little common sense into it and, and make it a story. So this is what she tweeted back in July. She said, Many small farms are now using regenerative farming techniques that indigenous people have been using for centuries. And in doing so, they may have found the key to protecting our entire global food supply from climate change. So I wasn't far off in saying this can raise the dead and save the world. This is almost what she's saying, you know, like we're going to, we're going to save it. But this is, this is my problem with this. We've, we've, this is pretty well-worn territory, but there's some specific points I want to make. By way of comparison, this is sort of like saying, you know, many small villages cook their food over animal poop, and this might be the key to stopping burns caused by <laughs> propane grills. It's just, it, it's just so absurd because because what this amounts to is it's saying, you know, how they used to farm uh, two thousand years ago. Well, that's the key today when there's actually uh, six billion or five billion more people, <laughs> and we need to produce way more food, and we need to do it much more efficiently. This is how we're going to do it is use these techniques that are almost as old as agriculture itself, right? So there, there's something wrong with that calculus. You're not, you're like, you're not paying attention to the facts. This is clearly an ideological issue for you. This is about having the right point of view on climate change and, you know, showing your appreciation for indigenous ways of knowing and all of these sorts of things. Um, and as we've talked about before, if you really care about people that are in developing countries, let them do what they think is best. And it's not coincidental that a lot of them go, well, I want the stuff that you have. I want the seeds that you have. And I want the pesticides that you have. And I want the cheap energy that you have. I, th they want all of these things because they understand the value of them. And then you have politicians and activists and all these people who are going, no, 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 no. I, I know I benefited from the industrial revolution and the benefits of capitalism, uh, but you're going to skip all that. And you're just going to get these unicorn farts solutions that I'm going to give to you. And that's, that's how we're going to solve it. It's, it's preposterous. So I'll stop there, Kevin. What are your thoughts? <laughs> well, you know, it ties in with what we've been talking about, about regenerative agriculture in general, is that it's kind of just a rebranding for this whole phenomenon uh, that they've talked about, you know, indigenous knowledge and, you know, which there is something there and we, we can learn something from it, but it's not a solution necessarily. We might pick up little bits and baubles here that are helpful, um, but it's not a solution to a, a looming food crisis. And I really see this more as a, a rebranding of organic because I think organic has kind of taken on a different tone as, you know, when Pepsi is making, or, you know, Pepsi and Mondelez and all, you know, massive food producers in gigantic farms are generating organic produce. It, kind of takes away the folksy feel of it, I guess. And I was in California one time uh, recently where I was on a big farm, one of these big industrial farm, like, you know, big vegetable producer. And they got a truck going to California. They got trucks going, or I'm sorry, trucks going to San Francisco, trucks going to LA, right in the middle. And they put 20% of the land aside for organic because they know if the truck's going that way, they're going to get as much for the organic stuff on that truck as they will for the rest of the truck if they put 20% organic. And so it's a, it's a profit thing for them. That's all. They don't care about any of these other issues of environment or uh, whatever. They are big companies that are exploiting that, that niche for market. 
And so I think folks in that area are starting to think about this as being, well, how do we make this a small farm thing? And so regenerative is the way to fit it. And no one really knows exactly what, well, and there's lots of people who think they know exactly what that means. But I think it's a question of, are you regenerating or growing? (laughs) I mean, are you regenerating something? Are you recreating something by using it? And I think a lot of folks have done that for a long time and it's called farming. <laughs> you know, you're, you're generating food, you're generating, you're transforming water and chemistry and sunlight into something we can eat. And that's really cool. Uh, you know, we do this all the time. We build soil that was essentially sand. We, ge- we regenerate soil through hard work and cover crops and amendments and whatever we can throw in the soil. We can't sell it at grocery store prices that way. But we can give someone a superior product locally and something that lasts longer and it's a good price. And so everybody wins. So I think this idea of regenerative is another kind of branding idea or marketing idea that bothers me a bit because now it's starting to cause us to think about things and, you know, fold in all of the ugliness that that happened before. And, and, and I would like to see that stop being a divisive term. We got into some trouble on Twitter a while back for some of the comments we made about regenerative ag and people were saying, well, you don't understand what it means. And, you know, there's certain things that we do and it has this, this benefit and this benefit. Um, And I, I, at the time I stood by what we said and we dug into the literature, but it's, it's a nebulous concept. It means whatever the speaker wants it to mean. And I included a, a definition from the natural resources defense council, just to back this up. So they say, As a philosophy to land management, regenerative agriculture asks us to think about how all aspects of farming are connected through a web, a network of entities who grow, enhance, exchange, distribute, and consume goods and services. There's no strict uh, rule book, but the holistic principles behind regenerative farming are meant to restore soil and ecosystem health, address inequity, and leave our land, waters, and climate in better shape for future generations. No one that I know of opposes any of those goals. Everybody wants to leave the earth uh, in better shape for their children, right? But this doesn't mean anything. You know, saying things like holistic principles and talking about uh, promoting equity, that's great, but but you need to know how to do stuff, you know? So if I was to say, Kevin, how do I build this bridge? And you were to say, well, we, have, we employ holistic principles that allow all people <laughs> to go across the bridge. That's not what I'm asking you. What I'm asking you is, Exactly. How do you build this structure so that it can hold the weight of all the cars that are going to go over it over the next 50 years? And how do you earthquake proof it? And how do you do this? And that's what I'm asking you, right? And so this is where the disconnect clearly comes in for these environmental groups and for politicians like AOC is they're divorced from the actual industry and from the people that actually grow the food and transport the food and sell the food, right? They're, they're looking at this from the outside and they don't know what they're talking about. So that, that's it. They just don't understand the trade-offs. That that was the only point I wanted to make. That's a good point. But I, I think that it, when you, I thought you were going to say we want to build a bridge, and that the inequity part wasn't who is allowed over the bridge, but who, <laughs> but who would be building the bridge? Because in these uh, in these agricultural contexts, the people who are doing the work, it's not it's it's not equitable. It is typically the poorest people. It's typically immigrant work. It's typically uh, work that's not shared among the wealthy consumers that can afford the products. 
and yet they can stare starry-eyed at uh, at the fact that uh, they think this is something that's really positive. You know, I think uh, equity is a really important part of this, and I think fair treatment, fair pay for farm workers is essential. And I know so many people, um, I mean, I know people personally who employ illegal immigrants to do farm work uh, because that's the only way they can do it. Small farms that can't profit unless they do it from, uh, you know, non-documented workers. And it's sad and, and because the folks aren't getting paid and that's the only, they're getting paid, but they're not getting paid for what their work is worth. And, you know, there's even child labor that's involved. I mean, it's horrible, but it's benefiting those families. It's benefiting the grower, you know, and, and I hate to say that that kind of thing exists, but it does. It's unfortunate. Um, but I guess the point to take away here is the, the way to solve that problem is not to deny people access to technology and to d- deny them access to energy and right. Like pulling tools off the table does not help people solve the problem. That's absurd. And we just have to drill that home, but we'll stop. I'll stop ranting. Kevin, tell us about uh, Trojan horses. Well, uh, let me throw one last thing on that last note is that if you give all farmers, all the tools, they'll find out what works best for them. Period. All right, this Trojan horse into cancer cells. Can this genetically engineered bacterium stop tumors in their tracks? And this is by Linda Zeldovic in Nautilus, which I don't know what that is. I've never seen Nautilus. Is that like a real publication? Yeah, it's it's good. They have they have some pretty good think pieces about okay. science. I was out, they, yeah. they made exercise equipment in the 70s or something. <laughs> so, so this is about Himanshu Brambat, and he is of uh, the company Engenic. And this is a uh, story about a universal cure-all for cancer. Now, if you're like me, you hear universal cure-all for cancer and your eyes glaze over and you tune out because cancer is not one thing. And it's a generic term that applies to any number of abnormal cell proliferation disorders, neoplasias that have potential to metastasize and uh, eventually cause death. That's the general concept behind cancer. So you can't say I have a cure for cancer, I have a cure for this cancer or a cure for this cancer, you know, or, or at least a treatment or a therapy that can uh, allow you to survive through it. Anyway, there are some commonalities that all cancers share or the majority of them share. And scientists are targeting those and they are attempting and making headway apparently in generating a universal cure. And so this is what's so cool about this article. And I, I didn't know some of this stuff before that replication machinery in the cell, and I know this, I teach this, your cells are dividing, and when they divide, they uh, replicate their DNA, right? You're going one cell into two cells. You have to replicate that 6.4 billion bases of DNA with great fidelity, and it has to be done perfectly, 6.4 billion times. And then that splits into two cells, and then when those two cells split, they replicate again. And that seems like, you know, that seems like a pretty insurmountable feat. That's a pretty huge amount of thing, generating 6.4 billion bases. All right, maybe a cell takes a few months to do that, check it out, tidy it up, make sure everything's good, right? Well, it turns out that this happens on a much different level of speed, that in the bone marrow, 500 million red and white blood cells are produced every minute. half a billion every minute and each one contains 6.4 billion bases to be replicated. So if you think about this, that means that you have 
a a billion meters of DNA being produced <laughs> every minute. <laughs> wow. uh, and now think about that one for a minute. That's 25 fold around the earth. If you stretched it all end to end, don't try it. <laughs> But but 25 times around the earth, every minute of DNA being replicated. I mean, it's pretty, I mean, that's unbelievable. And the best part about this is that it does it with amazing fidelity because there are surveillance mechanisms that look for mistakes and repair mechanisms that correct the mistakes. And it's almost foolproof, but not quite perfect. And that's where cancer cells come in, is that there are mistakes that do occur and that these genetic mutations can at times lead to changes in growth and, and, and proliferation that uh, start to get a little sloppy. And the faster you differentiate and the more you, I should say, more you divide and the faster you divide and the less surveillance and repair that's going on, the cells get sloppier and sloppier. And that's where tumor cells come in. This is uh, where these differentiated, these, these masses of tumor cells, solid tumors and blood tumors, they change as they go on. You see an evolution within a tumor that's occurring. And that's why um, this, these are such uh, devastating diseases because they're constantly changing uh, disorders. At, they're changing as the, as the mass grows and so hard to treat. To make things worse is that we go about solving these problems by essentially stopping cell division. And this was known from long ago. You could use colchicine and other compounds. That was one of the first chemotherapeutic agents to stop chromosomes from dividing into two cells. The problem is, is that some of your rapidly uh, dividing cells in your body, like the linings of your epithelium, your um, hair, nails, that kind of stuff, that stops growing because those cells get poisoned too. So that's really the setup. The solution that they have is pretty cool. They use a bacterium that's genetically engineered to produce these small vesicles of microRNA. So the microRNAs are these little pieces of RNA, which are the little molecules that are the transient ones in our cells. These match genes that are needed for growth in the tumor. And if they bind those RNAs, the tumor can't produce and can't grow. So how does this bacterium that makes these things get them into the tumor? They pinch off a little piece of their membrane, and that contains uh, a little surface protein that targets it to the tumor cell. So this way, only the tumor cell is taking these up, and only the tumor cells are stopping from growing. And it's a really cool idea. It's a really neat technology, and it essentially stops replication in those tumor cells. So at least that's the setup for the story. And obviously this has not been commercialized yet, but in the, in the clinical research you're doing, it works across different tumor types, right? So this is a really significant development. Talk about how the patients have responded to this thus far. Yeah, well, that's the beauty of this is that they selected uh, patients, even though results were promising in mice and things like that, they selected patients who had no other choice. And I had a friend who was like this years ago. She would do anything to try anything to just she, she was out of out she was out of time and out of outcomes out of uh possibilities so these folks um at who at, at this company uh found people who had no other choice they gave them this um treatment and uh they survived uh no horrible side effects stopped the tumor growth and 
I don't know that they're waving around the word cure, but at least it got to the point where they, they were at least extended their lifespan. So this is, uh, it seems like at least the beginning of a really substantial story. I'm just looking at this from the outside, Kevin, but it looks like we're getting close to some sort of a really significant breakthrough because we've talked about these different, like the CAR-T therapies and these different, you know, biotechnology-based cancer treatments and vaccines and so forth, like it seems like we're close, like we're almost there. And then pretty soon there's going to be something groundbreaking, like maybe within our lifetimes. I, I hope, you know, I, I know there's a lot of over, there's a lot of hype, as you mentioned at the beginning and people overselling their results, but we keep seeing things like this that seem to work pretty darn well in a clinical setting. What are your thoughts on that? No, I agree. But I think that the ultimate solutions are going to come from kind of the Swiss cheese model where you get a a solution that works 95% of the time tied to another solution that works 95% of the time. And you'll see pretty significant results and uh, attacking these problems from multiple levels. And you do have specialized treatments coming for things like uh, prostate cancer or breast cancer or uh, glioblastoma. You, you can target these specific tumor types because of their specific attributes. Different blood cancers, great example. Because of their specific attributes that make them what they are, allow the targeting to occur. This kind of therapy could be an adjunct to that that would really ensure that not only are you targeting a therapy to the right cell, but now you have this other one that targets proliferation and does so in a way where it's cell type dependent. And I think that that's where you're going to see the really significant differences. So again, we'll see where it goes. It is encouraging. And I'd rather this research be done than not done, right? I'd rather have these results than not. So it is, it seems to be at least a significant step forward. Now in equally important news, Kevin, apparently beer is going to taste like bananas in the near future. <laughs> yeah. And this one will get the Nobel prize, right? <laughs> you know, who do we do that? There we go. Universal care for cancer. Can we make beer taste like a banana? <laughs> Talk about like a, like a total, like a, uh, uh, I've got uh what do they call that when you whiplash from the I have whiplash <laughs> from the the significance of these two stories. Uh, this is an important one because this is this is a big deal in a way. Banana flavored beer, gene edited yeast expands beer taste possibilities by Laura Bysis in Popular Science. And this is a follow-up to a story we did a couple weeks ago where we talked about the company in Berkeley that was making genetically engineered yeast to make all these interesting flavors in beer. And they will be a guest on Talking Biotech. Yeah. Uh, soon. Yeah. So the, the funny thing is, is that beer through the years has gone through some strange changes and there used to be lots of flavors and different types back when you could, you know, go to a different town in a different tavern and taste what they had locally from the local grains that they had and roasted or whatever, and kind of hit a bottleneck in the 1970s, actually literally <laughs> passed through a bottleneck. Um, <laughs> Back when it was kind of like Schlitz black label, you know, Blatz in, in the 1970s, where everything was kind of the same. You know, everything was, you know, Pabst Blue Ribbon and hams and old styles, and, <laughs> you know, kind of the same. And I, I remember, I really remember this well, because when I was a kid, we would go to the Cane Beverage Mart in Chicago, and I'd get my dad or my grandpa to buy me beer. <laughs> I, I was a beer can collector. 
And so I would go get the cans out of the cooler and put them on the counter and he'd come up and get out the wallet. <laughs> <And> <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Seven years old. I mean, I'm starting early. Anyway, the thing I noticed was that um, there were different flavors. Not that I tasted them, but I saw, you know, what they were drinking and uh, things like Belgian sour, you know, that was as weird as it got. And uh, here it's, you know, Bud Miller course. That changed when this whole microbrew thing where people wanted different flavors. And so this was really important because wine, people want standard flavors. They want Merlot, they want Cabernet, they want, and then if you deviate from that convention, people don't like it as much. That's contrasted with beer where people are trying to get novel. They're trying to come up with new, new ideas, new flavors. And I think that's really cool. And now when you're trying to fold in biotech, that even makes it one neater. So, you know, that's the basis and stepping off point for the story. It goes to the fact that when the other difference between beer and wine is you ferment your wine in a, in a barrel or whatever, and it's not necessarily pressurized. When you, when you make beer, you put it under pressure. And these big steel tanks that are loaded with beer, carbonated, it's pressurized so that it has carbonation. But that carbonation and pressurization causes changes in the metabolism of yeast that limit the flavors that can be produced. And so this is where John uh, Thevelin is involved. He's a emeritus professor of molecular biology at the Catholic University in Belgium, in Leuven. And what they noticed was that you could take yeast and find some, what they wanted to do was find some that could perform better under high pressure. And they looked at different yeasts that maybe did okay and some that didn't and noticed that the ones that performed better had more flavor. And they focused on the flavor isoamyl acetate or the, the chemical isoamyl acetate. So yes, there's chemicals in your beer. Uh, isoamyl acetate. And it smells like bananas. And isoamyl acetate, it comes from isoamyl alcohol. It's a reaction that happens enzymatically to produce this aroma compound. And this is an aroma compound that is one of these compounds that is emitted from the beverage as you drink it. So it gives a sensation of bananas. Anyway, he found, and his group found, that when you bred, you crossed the good high-pressure yeast with the bad high-pressure yeast, you could identify the genes that were responsible or being affected uh, in this breeding experiment and you could identify individuals in the next generation that were very good at growing in the high pressure and producing volatile compounds like isoamyl acetate. And so from that, they were able to use genetics to identify the genes that were involved. And then they found out this gene has a mutation in it that causes it not to be as uh, sensitive to pressure and then generate more isoamyl acetate. The cool part about that is, is that once you know that gene, now you can, in the, in the mutation involved, you can introduce that mutation into any brewing yeast and now make a brewing yeast that will make banana flavor. Uh-huh. There you go. This is cool stuff, man. Um, you know, I was joking at the top, obviously, you know, flavorful beer is great, but it's in the grand scheme of the universe, it's not that significant. So my question is, could this technology potentially be used outside of this brewing context to do something more impactful possibly? Yeah, I don't know for sure, but, but what it does say is, is allows you to grow, um, 
understand how organ- microorganisms operate in unique environments. Okay. So maybe as you move down in the ocean under pressure, you may find some application for how these bacteria may remediate chemistries at lower and higher pressures. Who knows? If you can make a microbe better by fixing a gene that limits its ability to grow under pressure, you know, I don't know. But 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 I don't think you should sell yourself short in talking about this niche application because this is the real role for CRISPR and gene editing techniques. Here you're able to ident- create a new market and a new opportunity and a new beverage and a new choice because you're able to mutagenize a gene. And that's what gene editing should allow us to do, right? This should be this agile technology that allows us to create something super cool. And so this is why uh, these new beer flavors will take us away from kind of the Wonder Bread and Cheese Whiz, which was 1970s beer. <laughs> you know, it, it's going to give us that, that the the new novel flavors. <laughs> that was like 2010 beer for me. So, uh, you know, I think it has a, a pretty good shelf life. Natty Ice and hams and all that terrible stuff. Yeah, it did the trick. Yeah. Did the trick is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I forget that you're that you weren't around in the 70s. Yeah, no, the the 70s was a unique time for super bad beer. I'm mean, like when my dad got really crazy, he would go get low and brow, you know, or something. Like, it wasn't even like you know, and there wasn't a lot of light beer back then. And then in the 80s, they had Zima, which was clear, and then they started coming out with uh, ice beer and dry Ugh. beer, and and it was it was it was pretty lame. Yeah, but. Because people were clamoring for choices and they would just take the same stuff and kind of concentrate it a little bit or whatever. Right. The can turns blue. There's a new choice for you. That's right. Um, That's right. <laughs> I had a I had a friend back in the day because he would drink crappy beer with me. Because you know, we're young and don't have that much money, but we still want to get drunk. So he got hams one time and the can said, I think it was hams. And on the can, it says, it's the water. And he took a sip and he goes, oh, man, that's a disclaimer. That's not a slogan. (laughs) (laughs) That may be hams. It was either hams or Olympia. Olympia had. Yeah, that's what it was. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Hams has, it was from the land of sky blue water. Olympia was, it's the water. From artesian wells. (laughs) You're like, see, there's a nuclear power plant down the river a little way. So (laughs) if your beer is a little spicy, Sorry about that. It's the water. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, the, the Fukushima bro. Yeah, <laughs> Anyways, but to go back to your serious point, I, I think maybe I was a little um, a little flippant. I think if this does open up a new market uh, and it allows the beer industry to expand, that means more jobs for people. That means, right, there's economic growth in that, and there is a lot of benefits. So I didn't mean to sell that short. That's a very good point Kevin made. No, and it's one, but it's one example, right? It just says if you can do it to make banana flavor, you can do it to make other flavors, and how that works into the production of artificial flavors for uh, broader application and culinary uses and uh, other baked goods or whatever. I mean, it's, it, it just is science making our lives better. Very good stuff. Well, who are you following on Twitter, Kevin? I'm following Twitter safety. (laughs) Because this morning, some bonehead decided to post an old confiscated document that they got from, uh, 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 from judicial records for a personal matter I had, which had my bank account number and address and personal information on it and posted all over Twitter. And when I uh, notified Twitter of this and said, could you please take this down? It's been 12 hours now and it's still up. So thanks to Twitter safety. Uh, I, I will follow you today and hopefully 
you'll take it down. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, if you had misgendered somebody, you'd be off that platform faster than your head would spin. It's uh, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> well, the real crimes. Right, right. You know, I mean, like we have priorities here at Twitter, Kevin. You just need to understand that. Um, yeah. I think if you want to understand who's ethically suspect in the pesticide debate, I, I'm going to go with the people who are posting private bank information on the internet for the world to see. That's, that's the villain in the discussion. Anyway, that's enough. I'm following a gentleman named Jeff Deist. He hosts a really cool podcast about economics. It's called the Human Action Podcast. And going back to our first story about regenerative agriculture, it's really important to understand the economics of this. And like Kevin was talking about why some farmers are getting into the organic market or have been for years, right? If you understand the incentives involved, you have a better appreciation for what it takes to implement a possible solution to a problem. So I'd recommend following him. He's just at Jeff Deist. It's D-E-I-S-T and it's the Human Action Podcast. And with that, Kevin, 192 is done. Thank you all for joining us again. Follow uh, follow us as well at Kevin Folta on Twitter for now, and at ACSH Org for for my writing, and follow Genetic Literacy Project. They're at Genetic Literacy. They put this whole thing on. They give us this platform to tell you what we think about all kinds of stuff. And with that, we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.